The Choose Love movement offers no-cost solutions that keep our kids safe, providing them with the skills and tools they need to flourish. Join us in our mission to create the world we want to live in, one that's connected and compassionate. Check us out at chooselovemovement.org. Together, we can choose love. Hey, good morning, Choose Love Movement fans. My name is Scarlett Lewis. I'm the founder of the Choose Love Movement, and I am here today with a very special guest that I met recently at a leadership uh, academy. His name is Quentin Williams. He's the founder of Dedication to Community, also called D2C. He is on the board and a master instructor for that organization. He is a former FBI agent and federal prosecutor, as well as thought leader in trying to connect those who today seem the most disconnected. So we all know that we're stronger together and that love connects. And Quentin is an incredible example of someone that chooses love for a living. Welcome, Quentin. Thank you so much, Scarlett. I really appreciate it. I've been looking forward to this. That means so much to me. Thank you. Um, I'm going to read the mission statement for D2C, and then I'm going to ask you to explain why you started this and, uh, and, and where you're going with it and a little bit of history on yourself. I know you're a great storyteller. Um, so the mission statement, uh, the organization is a national nonprofit that educates and empowers communities through skill building workshops and ongoing forums designed to improve understanding and foster relationships while pursuing healing, reconciliation, and unity. Its experts work with government agencies and the private sector by training and advising on critical issues in public safety and law enforcement, as well as diversity, belonging, and equity. Uh, that is that is a huge mission. Uh, we're on something similar, but uh, it's it's a lot. And and why are you doing this? Well, I'm doing it because I've been called to do it. You know, I'm not I'm not a deeply religious person, um, but I am a deeply spiritual person. I do believe there is a God, and my God is has called me to do this. I believe this is the reason why I was born, given how I grew up and the professional experiences I've had, the honor of fulfilling, and then the personal, the personal circle of influence that I have as a result of the village that raised me. Mm. So this is this mm. is very deep for me. It's uh, it's the way I spend my my every waking moment thinking about how to bring people together. You sound just like me, Quentin. I mean, literally, literally words out of my own mouth. It, I, I, I feel like this is this, I was chosen and it's all I ever think about. And it's the most important thing to think about. And at the same time, I feel so grateful and blessed to be in the position that I can do this. And I know you feel the same way. And and for me, you know that it was a story that got me here 10 years ago. And so what what is your story? Well, and thank you for sharing your story um, with the world. It's a story we all know. Mm -hmm. But when it comes from you, it makes it even that more much more powerful to continue the legacy of your child. 
uh, my story began in really in on the island of St. Thomas, where I was born and I was born to a white Jewish mother who was abandoned by my biological father. She went through so much when she was on that island, carrying me and then giving birth to me without resources. She, uh, she was forced to come back to New York where she grew up after being disowned by her parents at the time, because during, during the height of the civil rights movement, my mother made the decision she was going to leave home at the age of 21, 22, to escape some abuse that was happening in that home. And uh, when she went to St. Thomas, my grandparents disowned her uh, because young ladies didn't leave home unless they were going to college or getting married back in 1964, at least in that house, that's the rule. So she went to St. Thomas, she had the experiences she had there, uh, got pregnant with me. Um, after I was born, she had to go back to New York because of the resource issue. And so she went back, but not back to her grandparent, my grandparents' house, which was a middle-class house. It was comfortable, it was safe. It was um, kind of a storybookish neighborhood they lived in in East Chester, New York. But we went back down, we went back to New York City, the Lower East Side of New York City, um, 153 Norfolk Street. And it's a, it's a great place now, but it wasn't back then a lot of crime. Uh, so she, uh, she and I lived there for four, four years struggling and then had the opportunity to move to Westchester County where she was raised. Uh, we moved to Yonkers and Yonkers had a storied history. This has a storied history. A lot of corruption there back then, bad education system. There was poverty and violence and drugs and all that stuff. I did all my education there with a learning deficit. I just struggled through school, but I didn't let people know I was struggling as much because I, I could fake it pretty well. So I faked my way through a lot of school in the early stages and then started to learn how to read a little bit better. My learning deficit is directly related to my reading comprehension. I, I don't comprehend words the way other people comprehend words while reading. And um, I, I did well. I actually thrived because of this village around me that helped me. And um, after graduating, I, I got a scholarship to go to Boston College, played football there uh, with Doug Flutie, had experiences that I'll treasure for the rest of my life. Went to law school uh, after that with a learning deficit and because I had a village, again, that was propping me up and got through it, got through law school. And then the journey really took off. Uh, it took off when I was admitted to the bar, started practicing law, became an FBI agent, federal prosecutor, worked for the NFL and the NBA, had all these experiences, again, all because of this village that was propping me up. I had such a powerful village that was, it was in many ways, it was countering everything that was going on in my life that was negative, the crack epidemic, being on welfare for 17 years of my life. Um, the learning deficit, the the struggle, my mother's depression. She had deep depression. She'd be in the bed for months at a time. Uh, and all of that, all of that made me who I am today and gave me, when I had the opportunity at this juncture of my life, to say, you know what? That all happened for a reason. It happened so that I would have empathy for everyone because I've seen so many, so many areas of living and understand 
that people are in pain. And so how can I help to alleviate the pain in society? And as you so, so put it so well, love is the answer to it. So how do we get to that place of love? And that's why I'm in this, to get us to that place of love. To get us to that place of love, because even though you didn't have an ideal childhood, it was that love, connection, and belonging that helped you to where you are today. Yes, absolutely. And my mother was at the center of it, even through the depression, even through the manipulation by men. She was having bad relationships with not just my biological father. I was adopted, by the way, by another man who who was a bigamist. And uh, so my mother found out he was a bigamist after they got married and I was adopted. So she had been disappointed so many times by men. It, it spiraled her at times, but she never stopped loving me and my younger brother, Mark. And she never stopped showing us how to build these meaningful relationships in life. Like my mother could find a friend for life on a, on a sandwich shop line that would be there forever for the rest of our lives. Some of our, our best friends, she, she, she just started talking to them at the train station. And 50 years later, here we are. And so she instilled in my brother and me, my brother's a master of it too, building of meaningful relationships in life. Mm -hmm. I have friends that I've had since I could speak. I'm 57, so let's just say since I was two, I have several friends. They're good friends. And it's because my mother taught us how to do this. And so we wanna teach the world how to do this, how to build better relationships, human being to human being with people. We think it's the answer because within that, the result is if we can get to better relationships, better relationships lead to love. And there you go. And there you go. And you know, the other thing that I'm hearing you say is the, the different meaning that you assign to the hardship in your life. You didn't look at it. I mean, you know, using the term fixed and growth mindset, you didn't look at it as something that was going to keep you from going uh, from from reaching your dreams, you looked at it as something that actually even helped you, motivated you, inspired you to get there with the meaning that you assigned. That's pretty incredible. Your mom must have helped with that too. Yo, definitely. I mean, she was she was encouraging. She actually let me be free. I was free young, uh, which is incredible. Under those conditions, many people would feel like they were not free encumbered by poverty and all the things that we had, my brother and my mother and I had to deal with, but I actually felt free because my mother just let me live, let me do what I could do to reach my potential, even knowing that I had all these restrictions on me because not being able to read, the way, the way we have to look at that, what that means to people, like all studying has to do with reading. And so I'm not able to comprehend words the way others are. It's going to take me much more time 
to just get through passages to understand what I'm what I'm supposed to be doing. And my mother would always just tell me, "You're the best. You're success. You're going to be successful. I love you." And my brother, my brother's a great guy. My brother would say, "You know, you say." She loves you so much, she'll give the shirt off her back to you. She'll give the shirt off her back to anybody. My brother says she'll give the skin off her back to anybody. That's how much she loves. My mother mm. would give the skin off her back to anybody because she loves them so deeply. She loves people, society, animals so deeply. That's, that's her commitment to society and her legacy. That's so beautiful. And so I think that that sense of love, being loved unconditionally and that attachment to your mom helped you overcome any fear that would have been instilled by knowing that you have this dis disability um, and then all of the other things that were in your life that were working against you. That love is what carried you through and, and that connection. And that's exactly what you're trying to do in DTC is teach people how to connect. And you you heard me say when I introduced you that you're connecting really uh, people and groups that are the most disconnected in our society today. And how, how, how do you do that? How do you facilitate healthy relationships in, in, a, in a society where there's so much distrust and of course the lack of trust how can you have a healthy relationship so and then you know how do you get two groups talking that don't trust each other and even even more than that are aggressive towards one another yeah it, it, it can be overwhelming for some folks that's why a lot of people when they when they hear about what we do they become overwhelmed like how, how do you where do you even start especially in today's climate. So what D2C does is it works for every, every individual on earth, really. It's, it's not just law enforcement in the community, but we do most of our work with law enforcement in the community. We, we also work with corporate America and incarcerated populations, academia, do a lot of work with colleges and K through 12. And, um, and, and so, and the military too, by the way, we started a, an, uh, an, initiative, an initiative with the military about three months ago, uh, teaching at Quantico. But law enforcement, law enforcement community is the most challenging audience you could have, I think, uh, given today's environment, because there's so much tension. And uh, the, the, the folks, the parties who are in the room don't necessarily, as you said, adore each other. Uh, that that comes from both law enforcement and the community. So how do you bring them together? We, over the course of two decades, we developed a curriculum that displays how to get people from the place we are today to that place of love in eight simple steps. And it's called the recipe for reconciliation. We believe that through education, we could solve all these issues. And our recipe for reconciliation, just, just as you teach and facilitate for people, courage, gratitude, forgiveness, you know, just as you do that, we do it 
through the recipe for reconciliation. It's not the only way to bring people together, but it is one very proven way. And I could always uh, give you those steps um, if you if you want to hear them. Oh, I know everybody that's listening wants to hear them. And and you know you say that there are different ways, but I do think that there are there are ways that that are proven and and that is what the recipe for reconciliation is i mean you've got an incredible track record of success and so yeah i'd love to hear them i, I was hoping that you would share them sure um, let me first let me preface it with one of the things that makes it work is because of the credibility of the faculty that walks into the room mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We have the most esteemed faculty you could possibly have delivering this information. We deliver it all through story. So the delivery mechanism is something that touches hearts. And we deliver it to audiences that aren't sterile. And I say that because it's really important. With law enforcement in the community, especially, this is it's not in a sterile environment. It's in an environment where both law enforcement and the community are in the same room so that they get to bounce off of each other the issues that are most pressing today and the solutions to those issues from two sometimes diametrically opposed perspectives. So the, this is the environment in which we do it. And so the recipe for reconciliation, we believe relationships are the answer. And in order to have substantive, successful, sustainable relationships, in order to get to that place of meaningful relationships, in order to get to that place of reconciliation and love, we believe the first step between humans, human being to human being, is to, number one, listen. We have to listen to each other. There are so many times when we're in conversations and folks are just waiting to speak and that's not listening. We say not just listening, but listening beautifully, mm. listening to souls, spirits, mm. listening to hearts. The thing that will change our world is when hearts are open, period. That's how we get to love. So we have to listen beautifully so that we we understand the plight of those with whom we are interacting. Because listening then leads to the second element. The second And before, we, before you go to the second, I, I just want to say you've already done two, because the first thing you did was get two of these groups into one room, and then you're telling stories. So now they're human beings, right? I think that that's even before listening, you're looking around and you're seeing somebody that is uh, breathing and has issues just like you <laughs> right. so, and, and angry and in pain, um, both sides. And, and pain, I think, can be a huge connector as well. Absolutely. That's a part of it. So we are definitely so aligned. So uh, you, you mentioned, you know, the setup is very important. Yeah. New story. Everybody's in the room together. Uh, these are really important. And the third piece about credibility, walking in with credibility. Right. So we're not just academics walking in saying, here's a PowerPoint presentation. This is what you We're We are academics, some of us, but we're also people who have experienced what they, the audience, have experienced. Either 
whether it's law enforcement or the community or both. In my case, it's both. I've been on both sides of the cuffs. So yeah. being able to, to, to translate that to something that's gonna open up a heart is, is a big deal. So listening beautifully as a first ingredient leads to learning. Mm. When you listen beautifully to somebody you learn about, and that's the second ingredient, learning. Are, are the hearts that we have open enough to learn? And then if that is true, we move on to the third ingredient, which is understanding. Listening, learning, understanding. Listening leads to learning, learning leads to understanding. If we do those first three things properly, what happens? Empathy is born, empathy. I know what it's like to be in your shoes now because I've listened, learned, and I understand. But here's kind of a pivotal piece to empathy. Empathy plus action is compassion. So am I willing to take action to actually change your plight? That's a game changer when we're not passively just understanding people, but we are actively willing to do something to help somebody. So this is what cops do. Cops are compassionate people. They put on a vest every day because they're willing to risk everything to help somebody else's plight. When they hear that, it strikes them because a lot of cops walk into rooms like ours thinking, we're going to be thrown under a bus. They're going to blame us for everything that's happening in the world. Instead, what they face with us is love immediately. Love, appreciation, understanding. We're listening to them. We're getting that they have families too. They have hobbies. They listen. They have careers. They're, they're working hard to support families. They're human beings. They're not robots. So listening, learning, and understanding are the first three ingredients. They lead to empathy and possibly compassion if you add action. And then there's a fourth ingredient. The fourth ingredient is the one that typically, typically law enforcement has an issue with this. When I, when I deliver it, there's a defense mechanism that hits. And it's because of everything that's happening in today's society. We have a history in America with law enforcement that's storied with some segments of society. We need to acknowledge that history because that history helps us to understand where we are today, why we're here, and where we're going to go and how we're going to get there. So acknowledgement is the fourth ingredient in this recipe for reconciliation. Now, this recipe, remember, it's not just good for law enforcement community. It's good for every relationship, personal, professional, everyone. You use this recipe on your spouses, kids, parents, uh, siblings. It works. If there are any mistakes in a relationship, Mistakes must be acknowledged in order to move forward. Without acknowledging those mistakes, 
we never get to that place of trust. The relationship's over. So acknowledgement, we have to acknowledge the history of the relationship that law enforcement has had with certain segments of society in order to move forward. But we've been stuck for generations because we as a society have refused to acknowledge that history. And now that history has some great things in it, but it also has some things in it that we need not to repeat. I mean, slave patrols are one of them. The civil rights movement, fire hoses and German shepherds, that's another thing. We have to acknowledge that history in order to understand why there's distrust. There's distrust with some segments of society because during those times, there were grandparents telling their grandkids, don't trust them. Those grandkids grow up to be grandparents and they tell their grandkids, don't trust them for generations. We have grandparents and parents telling grandkids and kids, don't trust them. That gives a great insight into why there's distrust with some segments of society for no apparent reason, actually, because they may not have had any bad circumstances with law enforcement, but they've been told not to trust law enforcement for generations. So if we acknowledge that history, now we can understand it and we can then move on. And the one, the one thing that I would say, and the one thing that brings up the reason why there's a defense mechanism is because with law enforcement, when they hear me tell the stories about especially slave patrols and how that was the incarnation of law enforcement in the South, especially, and that's mm -hmm. 1704 in South Carolina, the one reason they become defensive is because they think I'm saying you have to apologize for it, but they don't because mm -hmm. they had nothing to do with it. Mm -hmm. There's no apology needed, just acknowledgement. That's interesting. I was going to ask you that. Has there ever been a formal apology that we could point to? And interesting that you say no apology needed for acknowledgement. Yeah. I mean, listen, there are some relationships where you have to acknowledge and apologize to move on. I get it. Yes. But I'm talking in particular about law enforcement and community. Today's modern era law enforcement were not slave, are not slave patrols. They don't, they don't have to apologize for slave patrols. They don't have to apologize for the civil rights, what happened during those times with the fire hoses and German shepherds. They don't have to apologize for it, but they have to acknowledge that it occurred. It's mm -hmm. fact. Mm -hmm. And if they acknowledge it, we can learn from it. That Because the acknowledgement means we're learning from it. We won't repeat it. And now we can move on. So that's, I think, a really important step we have to acknowledge the history so that we can learn from it and we can move on. So important. That's, that's the fourth step. Now, remember, this translates for every relationship a human being could possibly have. Just think of your relationships. If there is something that needs to be corrected, it'll fall on the spectrum of this re recipe for reconciliation, listening, learning, understanding, empathy, compassion, acknowledgement. The fifth ingredient, what comes after acknowledgement is where the rubber meets the road. The problem is we don't even get to that ingredient if we don't acknowledge the history of the relationship. So let's get 
past acknowledgement to action. Action mm-hmm. is a fifth ingredient. Mm-hmm. You look at action like an action house. So an action house. If you look, if you look at a house, just it's the construction of a house. Every house has to have a proper foundation in order to have sustainability. Our action house, in order to form meaningful relationships, the action that's needed in order to get to that place of love has to have a proper foundation too. That foundation is in open-mindedness and humility. Those two pieces make up our foundation. Walking into a room thinking you know everything with your ego flaring means that you will never have a deep relationship with the people in that room. But if you walk into that room, leaving your ego at the door and open-minded with humility saying, I'm willing to learn, I just wanna learn. Now you have the beginnings of a great relationship. And on that foundation, we erect five pillars. These five pillars hold up the house. Vulnerability, courage, purpose, power, and pain. Vulnerability, courage, purpose, power, and pain. Vulnerability is uh, is a big one. And, you know, when I was going through everything I'd gone through in my life, I said I was faking life, basically. I didn't want people to really know who I was. I was so, I had so much shame because of my childhood. I was, um, I was on welfare and I had to, had to reconcile that poverty in my neighborhood. I was embarrassed, uh, food stamps, the whole thing just, it, it made me so ashamed. I couldn't read the way my friends were reading. I was hiding that. I have, I have a white mother. She was raising two black kids in a black neighborhood. The shame of having kids ask me, is that your mother every day? Is that your mother? Is that your mother? It carried into my adulthood. I, I carried that shame for 40 years with me until one day I said to myself, eh, it's costing me all my relation. Like I'm not able to have a deep relationship with anybody because I'm faking it. I'm not letting people know who I really am. I used to tell people, I used to think that people thought I was brilliant because I was faking that I was brilliant. I was acting like I was, I could read phonetically really well too, by the way. So I could read so well out loud, but I didn't know what I was reading. Um, my mother used to dress us in a way, so she would dress us and then we use, we'd wear the same clothes again, but she would switch it up in a way, so it made it look like we weren't wearing the same clothes. Mm-hmm. Um, we were able to fake it. And then when I was 40, I figured out, you know, it's affecting every relationship I have, this being, being fake. And so I decided I'm going to, maybe it's because I'm a Scorpio. And so I'm like a man of extremes. Instead of faking it, I'm just going to be completely transparent with my life. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to let everybody know exactly who I am. And so that's what I did. I just started telling my story to everybody who would listen. And when I did that, people started, my friends started saying, yo, we respect you even more. They didn't judge me. And because they didn't judge me, I got confidence. I just would tell so many people. And before I knew it, I was telling thousands of people from the stage, this is who I am. That vulnerability changed my life. 
Mm. I'm free again. Like I felt I was free when I was a kid because of the way my mother treated me, but I really wasn't free because I was hiding so much. Mm. As a 40 year old, when I turned 40 year old, 17 years ago, I felt free for the first time in my life. Really free. Like I didn't have any, there's nothing I'm hiding. I'm, people know who I am. And so I learned that that vulnerability was actually an attractive thing for folks. They, they were drawn to it and they were drawn to it because, yeah, I was, I was free in many ways, but I was releasing pain. Mm -hmm. I was, I was sending signals out to people that it's okay to be in pain. It's part of being a human being. And what I learned through that process was that pain is a connector. It's actually the connective tissue for human beings. Wow. What a lesson. And the reason that I figured it out was because people were coming up to me as I was telling my story on stages in front of thousands of people. People would come up to me and they would say, that's my story too. Mm -hmm. And with tears in their eyes, they would tell me their story of pain mm -hmm. and how they felt free now because they could release their pain by being more vulnerable and not worrying about being judged because they just heard somebody do it. They just mm -hmm. saw it with their eyes. They saw the result with their eyes. And so that vulnerability and pain together took my relationships to this other level. And then when you have in between there on that action house, you have vulnerability, purpose, power. When you have vulnerability, purpose, power, and courage, and then pain. So purpose, I found my purpose mm -hmm. through this process. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that I was happier once I found my purpose. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of folks in this world who are very upset with life, uh, depressed, because they don't know why they were born. They don't know why, they don't understand their purpose. They're on this quest for it. And usually your purpose is right under your nose. It's just you're looking out into the forest. So I found my purpose and I felt not only am I free, but now I'm really happy because I know why I live, why I'm living. Mm -hmm. And then the power, I reconciled that I have a certain amount of power. I mean, because I'm now at this point in my life to bring people together, how am I gonna use that power efficiently to create surrogacy so I'm not the only one doing this mm -hmm. so that other folks are drawn to it enough to commit themselves to do it too, bring people together, create surrogacy for that, me that message. And then um, courage, we, we must not forget courage. It takes courage to do this. Like you had some, at some point you just have to say, you know what, I'm doing it, whatever. And that's what happened to me when I decided I was just gonna be vulnerable. It took, it took every bit of me to do that. Cause I was so used, 40 years, I was used to not doing it. So I, I had to switch it up and it took courage to do that. Vulnerability, courage, purpose, power, and pain are the, are the pillars for this action house. If you 
If you do the first five things, the first five ingredients in the recipe for reconciliation properly, which is listening, which are listening, learning, understanding, acknowledging, and then taking action as I spelled it out, what Mm -hmm. happened? Trust, healing, reconciliation, and love happen immediately and organically. You don't even have to try. You've done the work. This is how we believe we get to love. This is it. We know it works. I am. I know it works because it works in my own life. And it's such an honor to be able to facilitate these discussions with people so that they can go do this in their own life. So powerful and so right on. I mean, it takes so much courage to be vulnerable. And I remember being in that group with you and you were sharing your story, kind of the last chapter of your story. And in in me, I felt so much love for you and I had never met you before. I wanted to get up, which I did, and walk over and give you a big hug because I just felt... I felt that connection. And so that really, it really does work, but it does take a tremendous amount of courage. I mean, everything that you've said, Quentin, is is so similar to what I've experienced, just a, a slightly different story, but um, my purpose, finding that through pain as well, um, Jesse's murder, and then his example of courage where his brave action saved nine of his classmates' lives. And so, uh, you know, me looking at that, my six-year-old doing something like that, I certainly could find the courage to start an organization and to spread a message that he, yeah, this side, he left on the kitchen chalkboard. I mean, if we're in this together, and I believe that we all are, I certainly got the easier end of the deal with just having to speak about it. And and you're right. I mean, if if you can if you can take this recipe for reconciliation as well as the making sure that the pillars, your foundation of your life are set and it's work and it's courage and it's dedication, it's being aware that you are implementing these things every single day, you can live a fulfilled life. But you have to take personal responsibility for that and put in the work. And sometimes I think today there are some that don't want to take that responsibility. They have a lot of anger and pain and they're focused on releasing it on other people. And how do we how do we move people? You know, I, I know anybody sitting in front of you in a room with you, having you instruct them is going to come to this. How, how do you think we can spread this message so that almost everyone gets it and move them towards personal responsibility? Uh, well, you are the perfect example of how we do that. I mean, look at what you're doing. It's You're doing it and you're you're having these kinds of discussions with other folks who are aligned with you so that we're all learning. We're all learning. I say, I learn so much every time I have a discussion. I'm learning right now. I learn when I go into these sessions. So it's that surrogacy. That surrogacy is a big thing. Uh, When I say the efficient use of power, it's exponential when you look at the results. If 
if it's just me, if it's just you, every day spreading this message, there is a limited amount of reach. But if it's you and me, and then the people who were spreading it to, they're spreading it. Now it becomes exponential, becomes as we as we say viral, right? It takes on a different life. And that's what needs to happen. And it happens when hearts are open. Uh, that that's that's the one piece of this that has to happen. A heart has to be open because we need human beings to see, see other human beings as human beings not as them, other, whatever, but as people. And we need to build that empathy and then take that action to help other folks. Uh, but you are, you're the living example of how this spreads, how it gets exposed. You created a platform to expose it. And now we just have to encourage other folks who are learning to take these tools and spread them in their own lives and then with others. I mean, basically, it's choosing love over fear in yeah. our personal life and with each other. Fear disconnects, love unites. And as you as you write it on your website, it's, uh, what is it? Um, I loved this. One in capital letters, COM, C-O-M-M, unity, one community. We are all the same as human beings in the want and need to love and be loved. And yet we all feel pain. And pain is where the great connection comes from. If we can see that, and, and kind of what I say is that there are only two kinds of humans in this world. There are good people, good people like you and me, constantly 24 seven trying to figure out how can we get our message out to more people. And then there are good people in pain. And that's such a hopeful statement because there's always something that we can do to help another's pain. And the whole service thing, I mean, you you came to this naturally through your life. I came to it because of a tragedy. But what I found after realizing all I could do was serve after my son's murder, all I could do was try to prevent the next tragedy to keep kids safe, to safeguard their emotional well-being. And then in doing that, I found that I helped and healed myself every single day. And I think that's another key. It's like, this is all for you uh, to, to help you live the best life with the fewest regrets. But the realization, actually, the ultimate truth is you only do that when you have the courage to step outside of your own pain and help help and connect and love and heal with other people. And that is something that I think that, can you imagine a generation that learns this as kids? I mean, we're teaching this in, uh, in, in nursery school. If you could imagine a ge generations of people that know this, I mean, I didn't learn this until 10 years ago uh, and, and my life is exponentially better. So it's you can learn it at any age, but we're trying to create the generation and the world that we want to live in, both of us. 
And, I, you know, I'd like to work more closely together in doing that. Yeah, I look forward to that. I, I really do look forward to that. We're so well aligned. You know, I, I've even taken the thought on the spectrum of pain. I've taken it to the place of embracement. I, I don't want to just tolerate pain. I don't want to just accept pain. I want to embrace it. Mm. It's, part of our it's a part of our humanness. Like we, I don't know anybody who's not gone through struggles, challenges, and pain. Mm -hmm. Maybe different levels, but there's pain. It's part of being a human being. Mm -hmm. So let's embrace it. Let's embrace this is a part of living. This is, it's, it's a part of our humanness. Once we embrace it, rather than avoid it, get distracted by it, once we embrace it, I think we move closer to that place of love. I want to embrace the pain I have so that I can, with vulnerability, let you know this is who I am. I think what happens when that occurs is what you and I saw when we were at our retreat, that retreat, when I told my story of my personal pain, recent pain, there were others in the room unsolicitedly who then told their stories. Yes, absolutely. They weren't prompted. Yeah, I didn't. I, and by the way, I didn't plan on doing I just It just started coming out. I just said, you know what? This is what I want to talk about. So when that happened, unprompted, folks started telling their their own stories of pain, stuff that they may ne never have told before. And that's the magic. That's like the miracle. As we say at D2C, it's a miracle of what happens in rooms in a very short period of time. When hearts are open, that the pain comes streaming and people are connected then because it's connective tissue. So they are then connected with each other at this other level. So as an example, with law enforcement and community, they hear about each other's pain and now they see each other as human beings in a different way. Mm -hmm. And now they're going to lunch with each other. They've exchanged mm -hmm. cell numbers with each other. It's mm -hmm. a different relationship. That's what we're looking for. Yeah. You know what else ha happened, Quentin? After you shared your story, we started talking and using the word, talking about and using the word love. That just started coming out. And then people started saying, well, it's all about love. And yeah, you're right. Then that kind of broke down the barriers and everybody was opening up and sharing. And and it was really amazing. And, and that's what started at your story, which is really incredible. And I would take your thoughts of pain one more step. And I would say that pain has a purpose in life. I mean, it's here for a reason. It is there to help you grow. And if you understand that, then you're going to be able to face your pain and ask the questions. What are the lessons in here? How can I learn from this? How can I grow through this? How can I be strengthened by this? Instead of, as you said, resisting, avoiding, or numbing yourself from that pain, you know that it has a purpose. Everybody faces pain and it's really not about what happens to you. It's about how you thoughtfully respond 
And can you thoughtfully respond with love with everything that happened? And, you know, I, you know, I, I take that uh, talking about reconciliation and even forgiveness when you can actually love the person who hurt you and, and regardless of the way that they did it, I mean, I'm talking about Adam Lanza right now who murdered Jesse, you know, people, some people say to me, there are things that you forgive and this is not one of them, but one, I know they don't know the decades of research that show that forgiveness is the way to live your life to the fullest and have the most meaningful relationships and live, uh, you know, healthfully and long. I mean, there's like so many, I feel like it's a selfish thing to do. So I kind of chuckle to myself when people say, wow, I can't believe you did that. I'm like, well, I did it for myself. That's kind of selfish. However, I will say that when you can actually find love in your heart for the person that hurt you, that's when you take your personal power back. I used to say it's just when you make the choice of forgiveness and you go through the process. But in actuality, I've learned only within the last year that you come full circle when you actually love that person and you see them as another human being in pain. When you take get curious, take a little bit of time to know their story, that's when you realize, okay, I understand. Uh, it doesn't make it right. It doesn't mean that you don't hold the person accountable, but you have, you know, you you go through the recipe in reconciliation. You learn, you understand, you acknowledge, and then that forgiveness is the action component. And, you know, that's really, I, I learn every single day, Quentin, just like you said, if I can put my head on the pillow and I have made another connection, I have learned something from someone or a book or, or teaching, then I know that I've had a fantastic day. And definitely, um, gosh, we are kindred spirits. I have to say that. It's amazing. Yeah, well, God brings people together for a reason. That this is no coincidence. There are no coincidences. I, I don't I don't believe there are. And you you mentioned numbing. And so let's just look at that. That that just brought something up in my mind. Numbing. What do we do as human beings when we are in pain and want to numb? By the millions what do we do? We turn to substances, we turn to activity that's not necessarily uh, productive. So we try to or numb. Or even our phones. I, I think that phones right. are handheld crack cocaine, yes. right? Absolutely. Because it's a distraction from the pain, right? Whatever you're not living life when you're on the it. phone. <laughs> that's yeah. right. So we're looking to numb ourselves the pain. But if we embrace the pain, then we get to what you talked about. We get to the purpose for the pain. And we get to understand that there is a purpose for the pain. Once we've embraced the pain, now we can embrace the purpose. Yes. If we think about this. And once we get to the place of embracement of the purpose, we will no longer look to numb. That's what right. we will do is we will look to ensure that we don't unnecessarily go through the pain again. It becomes a teaching tool. So with what happened in your life, so you embrace that pain, gives you give purpose to the pain, 
And now what you're doing is you're seeking to ensure that what happened to Jesse and his classmates doesn't happen again, because you can find ways to get to the perpetrator before the perpetrator is a perpetrator. And you do it through love. That's, your, that's the way you're doing it. Instilling love in young kids so that they never become that perpetrator. So what you've done is you said, okay, I'm going to embrace this. I'm gonna to get to that, the purpose for it. I'm going to forgive and factor in love so that Jesse's life, his, his life is not, was not in vain. He lives forever because you are giving life to some people, including prospective perpetrators who will lose their lives because they make decisions that they shouldn't do. Mm. I mean, this is so deep when you really study the essence of pain and why it exists, if, mm -hmm. if you embrace it. And then as I learned today from you, when you get to the purpose for the pain, now you can ensure that life is better for society as a result. Really, really deep. Yeah, life is better for society and it becomes better for you too. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, I'm, I, I say I'm, I'm not grateful for the tragedy, but I am incredibly grateful for everything that I've learned and how I've grown as a human being. And especially the contacts that I've made, the new connections and friendships, forever friendships on the same path. It's, it's so wonderful to meet someone else on the same path. And I'm so appreciative of you and your story and and what you're putting out there in the world and i'm excited that everybody listening can hear you and your perspective your recipe for reconciliation which i believe has can change the world is is changing the world that we live in creating a more peaceful and loving world and i'm just so grateful for you quentin well, thank you. And, and hey, listen, it's all about for us. And I know you feel the same way. I, I'm just guessing that, but I, you can, you can uh, let me know how you feel. It's one person at a time. Like we want exponential change, but one person at a time. Like I want to change one person. If, if one person can learn this, then that one person can affect their whole circle of influence. And now it becomes exponential. But don't, we shouldn't be overwhelmed by the fact that the world needs this. If we just do it one person at a time, the world will get it. So thank you for doing what you do as well. It's really special. And uh, I'm, I'm honored to, to have met you. And now we'll, we'll most, most definitely, not most likely, we'll most definitely work together in this way. Excellent. Thank you, Quentin. Quentin, we're going to share your website and everything else in the podcast notes. We thank you so much. And I look forward to talking with you soon more about this. Thank you for choosing love. <laughs> thank you so much, Carla. God bless you. God bless you. And I'll see you soon. Okay. Thanks. Choose love. Choose All love. Right. <laughs> bye bye. Bye. Hey, hey, oh. It's all part of us, we can all choose love, it'll lift you up.
if you let it in. Let the 